0: My talk this evening is on mindful awareness of the five hindrances. There are five states of mind that can sometimes visit our meditation. They're known as the hindrances. And they include a lot of what we don't like to face in practice. The five hindrances are sense desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt. I would guess that all of you have been visited by all five of these hindrances. No one avoids them in practice. Though sometimes we are a little surprised at the extent to which they show up in our practice. Yesterday, my partner asked me what I was going to be talking about tonight. And I told him that I was going to be talking about the hindrances. And he said, oh, good. And I was a little surprised because people don't usually say, oh, good, when you say you're going to talk about the hindrances. He doesn't um, practice quite as much as I do. um, But he's done a few retreats, so he knows more or less what we're doing here. And um, he's kind of like my informant to what people are thinking who um, uh, have practiced some but maybe not a lot because after 24 years, I can maybe forget what it's like to be in that position. So he said, oh, good, when I said I was going to talk about the hindrances. So I said, oh, well, why? Why, oh, good? And he said, well, because I remember that it was really a relief for me to hear that these states of mind are acceptable, Predictable and unremarkable. I told him I was going to use his quote <laughs> because that's a really nice way of, um, he, he, got, he got it. That's what we want to get about the hindrances, that they're acceptable, they're predictable, and they're unremarkable. Acceptable in that we want to learn um, to hold them with compassionate awareness Predictable in that you can count on them showing up and it's not some failing on your part. We often think we're bad meditators when one of the hindrances shows up. But they're predictable. They will show up. And unremarkable. By unremarkable meaning that they're not personal, that they arise because of conditions and they pass away when those conditions And so these uh, three traits will be woven into my talk tonight. So these five states of mind are called hindrances because they cloud our ability to see clearly. Actually, there are strategies to avoid seeing life clearly. The Buddha said, These are the hindrances and obstacles that overcome awareness and weaken clear seeing. So it can feel that way when these hindrances show up. It can feel like we're being overcome. These hindrances may be the reason why uh, a man named Frank Herbert said, to endure oneself may be the hardest task in the universe. Since we're trying to cultivate clear seeing, which is the meaning of vipassana, obviously we need to learn how to work with these energies. Now, I'm not particularly sure I like the the term hindrance um, because it makes it seem like these states of mind are something other than our practice when they actually are our practice. So I prefer the word challenges, perhaps, And through working with these challenges, these five challenges, we discover what peace of mind is. They're like the raw material of our freedom. So our usual stance to difficulties is to go the other way, to get as far as we can from them. And in this way, difficulties control our life. We don't have peace So what is it like to turn towards these five hindrances or challenges and meet them directly? Could this be part of our path towards a peaceful heart? In the Tibetan tradition, there's a saying that aspiring yogis repeat when they begin to meditate. It is, Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties and suffering on this journey, so that my heart may be truly awakened and my practice of liberation and universal compassion may be truly fulfilled. We can consider these challenges of these five mind states as appropriate difficulties on this journey to help us develop wisdom and compassion. As I said, these challenges are deeply conditioned strategies that we have to avoid life as it is, and opening to them is like opening doors to life as it is, to wisdom, an inherent part of the practice. Joseph said the other night in his talk that meditation is not just bliss. I have a quote from um, a man named Brad Warner in a book called Hardcore Zen. And he says, zazen, zazen is meditation. Zazen isn't about blissing out or going into alpha brainwave trances. It's about facing who and what you really are in every single damn moment. And you aren't just bliss. I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) You're a mess. We all are, (laughs) but here's the thing. That mess is itself enlightenment. Most of us have our favorite hindrance or two, the one that keeps showing up, or maybe we'll have what we call a multiple hindrance attack where you'll start with one hindrance. Perhaps you're a little tired. So then you'll start thinking, oh, I can't do this. It doesn't work. What am I doing here anyway? I could be spending my time in a much better way. Actually, what I'd really like to be doing right now is eating some pizza. That would be great. I mean, tofu? How much tofu can a person eat? You know? You know, I'm pretty tired of the food around here. And there you go. You have a multiple hindrance attack. (laughs) So sometimes you can start with one, and you can cover all five in a short period of time. (laughs) I think a sense of humor is a very appropriate um, response to talking about the hindrances, because if you don't have a sense of humor about these, you are going to get in trouble. (laughs) Hmm. Striking some uh, card here, huh? So with these challenges, we can't control their arising. They're impersonal energies that arise because of conditions. But we can apply some skillful antidotes to deal with them. But we also have to learn how to live with them skillfully and peacefully. So our relationship to these challenges, when they arise, is very important to check whether our relationship is one of aversion or whether we're able to accept what's going on at the same time as we take appropriate steps to work with them. So keep checking your attitude when the hindrances arise. If we feel aversion and want them to go away, we've just increased our suffering and increased our entanglement in the hindrances. Of course, we'll all try this. We all have to try it and see if it works first. So perhaps you're sleepy, and you don't want to be sleepy, and you want sleepiness to go away, and you fight with sleepiness. Before you know it, you've worn yourself out, and you've added aversion to your list of hindrances that you're experiencing in the moment. So if we fight with these hindrances, we see that we just increase their strength. But if we're aware of them and accepting of them while not neglecting to work with them appropriately, we can find freedom even within their occurrence. So how do we work with these five challenges when they come up? Our first and best tool is mindfulness. So we want to cultivate a relationship of not getting lost in these states of mind, of being aware when they arise. So recognizing these hindrances when they arise and observing them and getting to know and understand their nature can help them lose their power over us. So we can actually be happy each time that we become aware of one of these challenges because it is the awareness that transforms them. So a steady accumulation of moments of mindfulness poke holes in their power to seduce us and overwhelm us. One friend of mine describes it like... uh, a piece of cloth, a fabric, and if each moment of mindfulness is like a pinprick in the fabric, enough pinpricks and you start to be able to see through the fabric. This is how we can cultivate an understanding of the hindrances so that they don't overwhelm us. The Buddha said that careless attention is what causes these Mind states to grab hold of us and to strengthen. We aren't mindful, so they run us over. The antidote then is careful or mindful attention. Mindfulness is our protection. We see each hindrance clearly for what it is. We learn to meet these energies with kindness and compassion. We see that mindfulness, curiosity, compassion, and kindness are appropriate ways to hold these challenges. During the metta sitting the other day, I said the quote, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. So wisdom tells us that these hindrances aren't me or mine. Love tells us that we practice inclusivity, no part left out. So they're both true. The hindrances aren't personal, they're not me and mine, and yet we hold them with love and acceptance. I'd like to start with um, the two simplest, to me the simplest hindrances, sleepiness and restlessness, are sloth and torpor and restlessness and anxiety, a related pair. So sloth and torpor is low energy. I read that sloth is the physical low energy and torpor is the mental low energy. The Buddha said that when Sloth and torpor have overtaken us. It's like being imprisoned. You can't get out and enjoy the festival. A simile of a pond is often used when describing the hindrances, and for sleepiness, it's like a pond covered with algae or slime. It's dense, and you can't see through it. Restlessness, on the other hand, is an excess of energy. Physically the body can feel jumpy. It's that kind of like I have to keep moving my body feeling. And mentally the mind is jumpy. It's full of anxiety, churning, full of restless thoughts, perhaps a feeling like i got to get out of the hall or I'm going to die. The Buddha said that when restlessness overwhelms us, it's like being a slave. You're ordered about and you have no rest. Or that restlessness is like the pond whipped by the wind. If the surface is so rippled and agitated, you can't see through, you can't see deeply. I think one of the interesting things about restlessness is in this tradition there are different um, stages of enlightenment and, and it's said that at each stage of enlightenment certain um, fetters or difficulties of mind fall away. Restlessness is said not to go until full enlightenment. It's in the last batch. <laughs> so if you suffer from a little restlessness in the hall, you don't have to feel bad about it. It sticks around a while, very deeply conditioned in us. So the remedies for sleepiness and restlessness are to balance out the energy as best we can. So, for example, with sleepiness or sloth and torpor, I'll give um, some of the traditional antidotes. It's rather a long list, so don't try to remember all of them, but see if there's one that perhaps you want to try, one or two. So with sleepiness sleepiness or sloth and torpor, we want to raise the energy level. So one uh, simple way is to open the eyes. brings in light, can bring in more energy. Again, mindfulness. We can become interested in sleepiness. The very interest in sleepiness sometimes will dispel it. What does it feel like in the body? What does it feel like in the mind? We can also learn the earliest signs of sleepiness and take um action at that point before it gets uh too overwhelming i started to notice for me that the first sign of sleepiness is um these kind of weird hypnotic visions they're called or you know just these weird images that make totally no sense and you can't remember them at all and that to me is like a sign that sleepiness is just starting to come and so opening my eyes at that point can be helpful We can reflect on why we're practicing to see if that raises some of our interest in um, what we're doing. We can reflect on our death to create urgency. (laughs) We can stand. It can often be useful to do brisk walking outside, get some fresh air, Um, pulling on the earlobes. I've tried it. It actually does help some. It's said to raise your energy. Jack Kornfield tells a great story. Um, when he was practicing in Thailand with Ajahn Chah, uh, if some yogi was suffering a lot from sleepiness, he would have them do their sitting practice on the edge of a deep well. It, it, it supposedly worked quite well. <laughs> we don't have one here, but... I <laughs> And then we often recommend um, graceful surrender. That means that sometimes we are just tired. We can't, um, our human bodies aren't made to be on high energy all the time. It would be like uh, having a little motor and having it on high energy all the time. You would burn it out. And so we can start to kind of know our own energy patterns. I know for me, I'm a person who has a lot of energy in the morning, and then it just kind of goes downhill the rest of the day. So I plan accordingly, (laughs) like how I will use my time. So to be kind with yourself and understanding this, that the energy level will change, and that at the times when the energy is low, we can keep going. Um, as best we can, with a light touch. And lastly, um, I mentioned this the other morning, but we can reflect, even if we have uh, a lot of sleepiness in our sittings, we can reflect on the fact that um, when we look at the amount of time that we're awake, uh, we still have a pretty high percentage if you're awake when you're doing the walking meditation and all the times in between, which I assume you are. Um, that's still pretty high, pretty high percentage, so not to get too um, upset about it. Early on in my practice, this was my absolute favorite hindrance. I I spent a lot of sleepy sittings, especially after 6 p.m., and actually after 6 p.m., sometimes I would almost fall asleep during walking meditation, and I didn't need more sleep. That wasn't the problem. It was just that my energy was low at that time of night, I remember one time when I was uh, sitting with Upandita, who you've maybe heard a little bit about, a fairly strict uh, meditation master. And um, I would fall asleep during his talks. Um, I mean, half of it was Burmese, so that didn't help a whole lot. So one night he gave a talk on yogis who fall asleep during talks, (laughs) how they didn't have any dhamma energy. And I fell asleep during that talk. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my practice, it kept working. So don't worry too much. <laughs> hmm. I think the biggest problem for many of us with sleepiness is the not wanting it to be there. So checking the attitude, you know, is there aversion? Are we having thoughts that we're a bad meditator? or that we should somehow be able to control whether sleepiness happens. No, it's just conditions. It's impersonal. It's not your fault if you're sleepy. So then there's restlessness, which is um, an excess of energy. A few ideas on working with restlessness. First of all, we always have mindfulness what does it feel like in the body and the mind can we recognize be aware of and be interested in restlessness sometimes when um restlessness is present it can be helpful to um make our res- our awareness for me it's like i make my awareness larger than the restlessness, instead of trying to follow what's happening, because when it's restless, sometimes there's this feeling like you're chasing your experience around, trying to catch up to it. Um, If the awareness can be large and hold the restlessness within it, then it can be okay. Just there's restlessness. Sometimes if there's a lot of restlessness, it can be helpful to anchor the attention with one experience for a period of time to see if that helps calm the mind a little bit. So perhaps uh, resting the attention with your breath or resting the attention with hearing. Sometimes restlessness likes a large pasture, so hearing can be a good anchor if there's a lot of restlessness or the feeling of the whole body sitting Yeah, restlessness doesn't like to be contained too much. We have to give it a little bit of space. And Joseph is famous for saying that you can be the first meditator to die of restlessness. It feels that way sometimes. Restlessness is like, ah, (laughs) Sometimes we experience sleepiness and restlessness as a protection from deeper pain, as a kind of resistance. And while we can work skillfully with them, I also feel like it's important to have proper respect for our protections. Sometimes we come in here with the idea that we're going to blast through our protections and uh, pull open our hearts and... um, Sometimes it's a bit slower than that. I think if we didn't need our protections we'd all be fully enlightened. Our protections can help us accept life at a pace that works for us. So when these protections, if it's sometimes it's just an energy imbalance, but when they are present, we can focus on the acceptance part of mindfulness, the meta part of can we hold these energies with care. So, sloth and torpor and restlessness. The next hindrance I'd like to talk about, or the next challenge, is doubt. Now this one's a bit more insidious. It can be really sneaky. It's also a very difficult hindrance because it can be paralyzing. The Buddha compared it to muddy water that obscures wisdom. The Buddha also compared doubt to traveling in the desert without a map or provisions, not sure of the way you go in circles, always jumpy, afraid of bandits, no reference points, lost. He also compared doubt with a traveler with valuables coming to a fork in the road and tearing too long and deciding which fork to take is overcome by bandits. So we may doubt this practice. We may doubt the teachers. We may doubt our ability. We may doubt that it's the time to do this. The thing with doubt is it can make up the most believable stories. Once it gets going, and if we're not aware of it, it can tell us stories that we start to believe. These can paralyze us from investigating further and cause us to pull back in our practice. And if that's true, doubt can be a problem if we're not aware of it and we believe it. But doubt isn't always negative it can inspire us to look deeper in our practice. Barney Glassman says in Instructions to the Cook, Doubt is a state of openness and unknowing. It's a willingness to not be in charge, to not know what is going to happen next. The state of doubt allows us to explore things in an open and fresh way. Our problem with doubt is that we take it to be a negative thing. We think that because we don't understand or because we're not sure there is something wrong. But this doubt can be positive. Positive doubt can allow us to see what life is about. It can help us get rid of our complacency. So doubt can inspire us to search more deeply. And we can use it in that way to fuel our practice, to see for ourselves. It can keep us from getting too sure, from knowing too much. There's a Zen story. After several years of practice, a student came to Dan and Katagiri Roshi, saying, I used to think I knew what you were saying in your lectures, but lately I just don't get it at all. A grin spread over his teacher's features. Finally, Katagiri Roshi said, you're getting somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> He's pointing to that positive aspect of doubt if it lets us be open to seeing freshly, seeing anew. But if doubt is causing our practice to be stalled or paralyzed, here are some possible antidotes. Again, be mindful of doubt. Notice when it arises, what is it? What is doubt? Seems like it's a string of thoughts and some fear perhaps and some resistance. How do you experience it in the body? How do you experience it in the mind? Just being aware of it can be a very powerful antidote to to its power over you. Perhaps notice the relationship of doubt to emotion. Do certain emotions bring on doubt for you? Perhaps boredom or aversion, failed expectation. That can often bring on doubt. Notice the relationship of energy to doubt. Do you find that doubt arises when your energy is low? If you know that, then when your energy is low, you can be on the lookout for doubt, so that it doesn't sabotage you. The Buddha said, "Another antidote to doubt is to get conceptual knowledge." To hear the Dharma, to ask questions, to get clarifications, but only to a certain extent. That um, conceptual knowledge can only take us so far that an even better antidote is developing faith through verification through one's own experience. So as we practice more and develop faith through our own experience, we will often find that doubt lessens. One last antidote for doubt can be to make a time-limited commitment and judge afterwards. So you may find that there's questions about, oh, is this practice any good? Is is it the right thing for me? Do I know how to do it? Do these teachers, all the questions that can come up. You can make um, as long a a commitment as possible. If you can make it all three months, great. You can make a date without and say, okay, on December 14th, I'll sit down, and we'll have a long chat. <laughs> you can tell me all your concerns, <laughs> and I'll think about them. <laughs> but if you do that during the retreat, you find that it just dissipates your energy. You know. So if you can't make it to December 14th, well, maybe a week. All right, next Friday night after the talk, we can have a little doubt fest for a half hour. We can think about it then. <laughs> Anything to, you know, to because they're important questions, right? These are important questions, but it's just that they will sabotage you if you spend a lot of time thinking, getting lost in them. One last quote about doubt. Again, from Brad Warner in Hardcore Zen. Doubt And everything is absolutely essential. Everything, no matter how great, how fundamental, how beautiful or important it is, must be questioned. So meditation is doubting all that we carelessly assume about life and investigating for ourselves. All right, now we get to the last two um, juicy hindrances (laughs) sense desire and aversion. Sense desire. The Buddha said that all of our suffering comes out of desire, the mind that wants. Of course, we're all familiar with this mind, it has many variations. Wanting, greed, envy, covetousness, fantasy, obsessions, addictions, attachment, expectations. They all boil down to wanting. Sense desire arises when we give unwise attention to beautiful objects. What does that mean? Since desire is a kind of energetic, leaning towards pleasant things or experiences, a tendency to grasp at pleasantness, it's a part of all of our conditioning. So something pleasant comes along and we want to hold on to it, keep it. Yes, I want that. It's our tendency if we're not aware or give unwise attention It's because we think that this thing will satisfy us. That's where the lack of wisdom enters. When sense, desire operates, Patrick O'Fool's, in the book that I mentioned the other night, um, Buddha Takes No Prisoners, he says it's like we frenetically rearrange the deck chairs on the SS Samsara, trying to make ourselves happy by acquisition. (laughs) We live in a society that glorifies desire. Capitalism runs on it. Our whole economic system is designed to increase desire, to whet our appetites. A quote We live in a society whose whole policy is to excite every nerve in the human body and keep it at the highest pitch of artificial tension to strain every human desire to the limit and to create as many new desires and synthetic passions as possible in order to cater to them with the products of our factories and our printing presses and movie studios and all the rest. When do you think that was written? Thomas Merton, 1920s. (laughs) Kind of can relate to it now, huh? We're told every day to believe that if we satisfy our desires, we'll be happy. There was a Newsweek um, cover that I liked. It says, what you'll want next. We're a little bit radical here. We're taking the revolutionary stance that we want to learn to work with desire in a balanced way rather than to be enslaved by it. The Buddha said that desire is like a pond that's filled with lovely colored dyes. We become distracted and enchanted by the dyes and don't look more deeply. Because sense desire has something pleasant as its object, we don't always uh, recognize the suffering in it. It can seem kind of nice. It gets confused with the pleasantness of the object. So, what is the problem with sense desire? Sense desire is a state of tension, it's a state of separation. And it obscures the truth that nothing can permanently bring us happiness. No sense pleasure can permanently bring us happiness. If we look closely at the state of desire, we see that it is actually a state of tension, of stress, of dukkha, suffering. There isn't any peace in it. If we satisfy one desire, we may have a few moments of peace, But that peace is really just that desire isn't present in that moment, and then another desire will come up. The Buddha compared this wanting energy with being in debt. It arises again and again, and it's never paid off. Or he likened it to a traveler who leaves without provisions and thinks the next town will have food and drink and arrives there and finds it empty and goes on to the next village thinking that it will have food and drink and finds it empty too. The truth of this world is that everything changes and that if we look for our happiness and sense desire that we're always going to be restless because of the continual searching that will be necessary So what should we do when desire arises in our practice? First, we can remember that it's not desire that is the problem. It's the being lost in desire that is the problem, the difficulty. So we want to be mindful of it. We don't need to repress it or condemn it or make it go away but we also don't want to encourage it or feed it. So the way we do this is by turning our attention towards the desire itself and investigating it. So usually when sense desire rises, we're very focused on the object of our desire. In our investigation, we turn from the object to the wanting itself. So we apply this tool of mindfulness. We recognize, first of all, that sense desire is present. If mindfulness is strong, or the desire isn't particularly strong, that may be sufficient to return the mind to spaciousness. Sometimes we'll turn our attention to desire and it will evaporate. If not, we may need to explore it in a little more detail. What does it feel like in the body? What kind of sensations may be associated with it? What is the flavor in the mind? So we become very intimate with wanting. Know its back and its front, its subtleties, its nuances. This clear seeing is very freeing. It means that we don't have to be run by desire. We can let it arise and let it pass away. It doesn't have to fool us and rule us. We can become interested in the difference between being mindful of desire and not being mindful of desire. What happens when we're not mindful? What happens with desire? We believe whole stories about what will satisfy us. What happens when we're aware of desire? Is there a problem? So we can explore. Now on retreat, we have our own forms of desire that may arise. We've mentioned Vipassana romances. May find somebody that we find particularly attractive, get a whole story going about our relationship to them. Well there's many things that we can crave in our little world here that we have on retreat. How much time do you think do you spend thinking about lunch? Other comforts that we may crave on retreat? Our practice is not to consider that something that must be gotten rid of, but something that is understood, investigated and understood. When we can do this, we can learn to hold our desires with a lot more lightness, perhaps even playfulness. One of my favorite stories about relating to desire comes from one of Sharon Salzberg's books about the Dalai Lama. It says we all like pleasant experiences and are fortunate to enjoy them, but if we become lost in attachment, that enjoyment inevitably turns to clinging and then we suffer. At a Buddhist-Christian conference I attended at Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was speaking about the tour of the monastery he'd been given earlier that day. He began by saying that he was quite impressed that the monastery was able to support itself through the manufacture of cheeses and fruit cakes. Then in the midst of this formal presentation with television cameras rolling, the Dalai Lama said, I was presented with a piece of homemade cheese, which was very good, but I really wanted some cake. <laughs> he laughed uproariously and repeated, It was so unfortunate, really I was hoping someone would offer me some cake and no one did. His, his, his childlike candor was wonderful with nothing manipulative about it. Clearly he could be quite happy without a piece of fruit cake, and some of this state of happiness was the very ability to laugh at his desire for the cake, as well as being able to speak about it unabashedly before dignitaries of two religions and a television audience. It's great, isn't it? Maybe we can learn to hold our our wanting mind like this not that long after I had read that article, I took my two goddaughters out to um get some ice cream for one of theirs. It was one of their birthdays, and so we got a free Sunday at the end a hot fudge Sunday, which I like hot fudge Sundays, so we're kind of sharing it. We all have these spoons, and in a moment of careless attention, I got overcome with desire, and I pushed Davi's spoon out of the way so that I could take a big chunk of hot fudge. (laughs) We just started to laugh. They're like, Rebecca, did you see what you did? And um, we just laughed. We saw it It was so funny. They reminded me of it for months afterwards. but we were able to hold it a little bit like the Dalai Lama, like, oh, look at that. It's the wanting mind. So last but not least is aversion, which is another one of my particular favorites. Aversion manifests in many different forms. Fear, anger, ill will, Hatred, annoyance, irritation, anxiety, panic, terror, resentment, judgment, boredom. It's a moving away from experience, a rejection of experience, giving unwise attention to repulsive objects, said the Buddha. The Buddha's simile for being lost in aversion is it's like being ill. Nothing tastes good. You can't enjoy anything. And it's like boiling water. When water boils, it's turbulent and you can't see through it. It It contracts the heart and narrows our vision. Remember the last time you were angry with somebody. What a narrow picture you had of that person at that point. Or the last time you were afraid, how fixated you were on the object of the fear cutting out the larger view. Aversion blocks our connection and causes us to feel separate and alienated. It contracts the heart. Aversion is deeply conditioned, as is sense-desire. With sense-desire, we have sense-contact. We experience it as pleasant. And if we're not mindful, desire arises, and we get lost in it. With aversion, we have sense-contact. We experience it as unpleasant. And if we're not mindful, aversion arises, and we can get lost in it. So desire wants to hold on and aversion wants to push away. Whereas the painfulness of desire can be masked by the pleasantness of the craved object, aversion is clearly painful to most people, and we don't tend to like it. We tend to want to get rid of it. It can cause us to lash out in ways that are quite unskillful. Or we may suppress it, which doesn't give us a chance to learn how to work with it skillfully and um, the likelihood that it will come leaking out in some way or the other, some unskillful way. And so mindfulness, again, is our choice of antidotes, becoming aware of aversion, letting it be there, but not acting it out unskillfully. So we bring wise attention to aversion. Anger feels like this. Fear feels like this. How do we experience anger or fear? How do we experience it in the body? How do we experience it in the mind? Sometimes when we're experiencing aversion, it can be useful to ground in the body, too experience it in the body because the mind stories, as we all know, can be so seductive we can get uh, swept up and lost in them so easily. And again, the power of aversion is that we believe it. We believe all these stories that come up. We get lost in the stories. We identify with them. So even if we can just remember that it's a mind state, notice that it's present, That's a great um, advance. It's one of those little holes in the fabric. We're on our way to freedom. So the antidote to aversion is interest. How about judgment? Can you count how many times judgment comes up in a sitting? Can we become interested in it? I've particularly, um, in the last few years, become interested in noticing how long it takes me from when I first have to deal with unpleasantness or some kind of sudden change till I accept it, till acceptance comes. So just watching the whole process of how my mind will deal with some inconvenience or some unpleasantness. Like, for example, I fly sometimes to teach and... It's not uh, such a picnic flying these days. And so, you know, there will often be schedule changes and cancellations and this and that. And so I'll be very interested. Just watch my mind. Okay, what does it do when I get to the monitor and I look at it and my flight's been canceled or changed? How long does it take? How long do I fight it till I can accept it? Recently I was traveling for about 16 days. Some of it was a vacation, but... I was in uh, Portland, Oregon, and quite ready to fly back to my own home and bed after a number of days on the road. And I got to the airport, and by some new rule they had made or whatever, they wouldn't let me get on my flight. And um, this meant I was going to have to stay overnight another night because it was the last flight out that day. So I was going to have to find a place to stay in Portland and not pleasant. (laughs) So I watched how I dealt with this. And um, I was really tired, so I started to cry. And then this voice in my mind said, Rebecca, you've been practicing for 24 years and you're a Dharma teacher. Shouldn't you be doing better than this? (laughs) And then I said, well, I'm not. (laughs) I'm tired. I want to go home. (laughs) And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to be all right with that then. And I let myself have a little. I mean, I didn't sob out loud, but you know, there were tears going down my cheek. I said, okay, I'm just going to be with this till it passes. So I just sat there. And then it passed. And then I said, okay, now what do I need to do about finding a place to stay tonight? <laughs> you just start where you're at. There was something. Powerful also about just being able to say, okay, this is what's happening right now. And it'll change. I knew it would change and it did. So on retreat, we have a special kind of aversion called yogi mind, which I mentioned the first night and which is starting to pick up steam about this point, I think. It tends to, once you guys are starting to cook, yogi mind picks up steam. And yogi mind is when um, something little, because there's not a lot happening. I mean, there is a lot happening around here, but there's not a lot coming in from the outside. So little things become really important. You may even have a VV. We mentioned VRs, Vipassana romances. Well, there's also um, an aversive form of this known as a VV, which is a Vipassana vendetta. And that's when there's somebody on retreat who you have just decided you don't like and um, you know it's just some little thing you've picked up and then projected the same as um, a Vipassana romance but they can get pretty intense we can have whole Vipassana vendettas so we should watch out for this watch out for the aversion that can take over when something in this environment doesn't go um, exactly as you wished or you see your Vipassana vendetta walk by See if you can make that part of your practice and not separate. I still remember a number of years ago when I, um, I was sitting a retreat here with an ex-boyfriend. And it hadn't been, it had been a few months, but it was still sore for me. And so I saw a note he put up on the board, the bulletin board, to a woman. A Woman's name was on this note. I worked with that for a week. You know, all the like the emotions I brought up, but the great thing was actually it was really really interesting. I mean, it was painful at first, but then it got really interesting to understand and see how the emotions would roll through and what would happen when I was able to bring more and more mindfulness to them. That was yogi mind. The, the interesting part of the story is that um, after retreat, I said something to him about this note that he had written to this woman. He said, I didn't write any notes on that retreat. <laughs> <laughs> I'd made the whole thing up. <laughs> <laughs> this is yogi mind, so watch out for it. So the five challenges. A universal antidote for all of the hindrances is noble friendship, sangha. So I like to think of us all here together supporting and strengthening this noble friendship, the fact that we're all together, all with this commitment to work with these five challenges. That helps. And sometimes we support each other by persevering together. You know, you come in the hall and you see the hall full with other people and you feel inspired to keep going, even if you are in the middle of a multiple hindrance attack. Sometimes we support each other through challenging each other, through our Vipassana vendettas and our Vipassana romances. But noble friendship is is that supporting each other as we work together to meet these mind states, with compassion and with mindfulness. Sometimes it feels a bit slow, doesn't it? They keep coming back. They may find new ways to trick us, seduce us, that we weren't aware of. I think we have to be willing to be very, very patient in our working with the hindrances. So, in that line, I'm going to end with a story from a book called The Slow Movement by Carl Honore to give us a long term perspective. Another marathonic musical event is underway in Halberstadt, a small German town famous for its ancient organs. The local St. Burchardi Church, a 12th century pile that was sacked by Napoleon, is a venue for a concert that will end in the year 2,640, sponsors permitted. The featured work was written in 1992 by John Cage, the avant-garde American composer, its title, appropriately enough, is ASLSP, or As Slow As Possible. How long the piece should last has long been a bone of contention among cognoscenti. Some thought 20 minutes enough, hardliners insisted on nothing short of eternity, infinity. After consulting a panel of musicologists, composers, organists, theologians, and philosophers, Halberstadt settled on 639 years. The exact time that had passed since the creation of the town's renowned blockwork organ. To do justice to Cage's piece, the organizers built an organ that will last for centuries. Weights attached to the keyboard hold down notes long after the organist has left. The ASLSP recital began in September 2001 with a pause that lasted 17 months. During that time, the only sound was that of the organ's bellows inflating. In February of 2003, an organist played the first three notes, which will reverberate through the church until the summer of 2004, when the next two notes will be played. The notion of a concert so slow that no one who attends opening night will hear, live to hear the final note <laughs> clearly strikes a chord with the public. Hundreds of spectators descend on Halberstadt each time an organist comes to play the next set of notes. During the long months in between, visitors flock to soak up the residual sounds echoing around the church. It's kind of a spacious view. I'm going to encourage us all to take a spacious view of the hindrances. Hold them with mindfulness, but also to hold them with lots of compassion and lots of patience. Let's sit for a moment. May your work with the five challenges open the doors of wisdom.